Well, Father, we come before you grateful for this opportunity to sing together, to worship together, to take communion together, fellowship together, and now to sit under your word as a community. I pray that you will speak truth to us. I pray that your word will be clear. I pray that we will be challenged, Holy Spirit, convict and encourage as needed in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back when I was in high school, I was a huge U2 fan. In fact, in the fall of 1992, I went to the Zoo TV tour in Arrowhead Stadium. And one of their signature songs is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I want you to note the clear biblical imagery of it. I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds, and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, oh my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, I want you to note the clear biblical allusions to Jesus. You know, Bono says he believes it, but he still hasn't found what he's looking for. And so what do you make of this? Well, one observer notes that it's a song about searching for meaning or transcendence. And to me, the most interesting thing about it is that you don't find it. It's all about the search. So what happens when somebody is a seeker, they're looking for truth, they're introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they say, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Turn with me to Luke 7, 24 through 35, and we see Jesus addressing the curious. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did he go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did he go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury, and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did he go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton 
and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, in the context, John is rotting in prison. He has second thoughts on account of his suffering and the fact that Jesus may not be matching his expectation of a messianic liberator who will come and set everything right and set the captives free. So he sends two messengers to Jesus. Jesus says, before I answer your question, watch this. And then he performs all these healing miracles. And then Jesus tells them, blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Then they go back and and there's a watching crowd who just saw this whole interchange and he's beginning to address them. He defends John as the greatest of all prophets. Don't think that he's a flake. We'll talk more about that later. But then he begins to challenge their own response. Why did he come out and see me? What were you seeking? What exactly were you looking for? And what's interesting is that there is a division in this crowd. There's, there's some people who have found what they're looking for, but there's another group, the one that's indicted, that still hasn't found what they're looking for. Now, I, I have seen many people like this. There, there are many people who, every time you share the gospel with them, you think that they're really close. They're, they will engage in the conversation. They might even go to church. They never give you a hard no. They always come across as, as earnest spiritual seekers. They want to keep the relationship with you. They don't want to be grouped into the absolute heathens. And they hear you. They understand it. They have this appreciation for Jesus but not necessarily a a submission to Jesus. And when you say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, it almost sounds pious, right? That That the joy of all of this is in the search. But just don't nail me down. But what happens when you present the gospel to somebody, and this is really the issue, you present the gospel to them, but in the end, the gospel is not good enough. They take a pass, because they still haven't found what they're looking for. And I understand in a church this size, I might be addressing some of you, right? You've come, you love the community, love the preaching, let's face it. (laughs) And this is kind of a part of your life, but there's something that's kind of holding you back because you think to yourself, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I hope that this message helps you reconsider that. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the curiosity, the claim, the response, and the reason, and then really explore the reason why is it that some people look at the gospel and say the gospel's not good enough, and they continue their spiritual search past the gospel, and they keep on telling themselves, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So we'll start with the curiosity. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now, as recall, John was wondering, Jesus, are you still the Messiah or do I need to look for somebody else, right? He had a season of doubt. And you hear that and you might think that there's something wrong with John, that, uh, you know, perhaps he is a, a, a flake. 
But Jesus makes it very clear that John is not a flake. In fact, he is the greatest man who ever lived. And, and he asks some questions of this crowd who's watching this whole interchange. Verse, starting in verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And then he asked this question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, John is in the Jordan Valley by the Jordan River, which is where he was doing his baptisms. And so he asked this question, why did you take a day off work? Walk to the hottest part of Israel and stand in the sun. Was it to see a reed, and there was plenty of reeds that grew along the banks of the Jordan River, shaken by the wind? Did you just come to watch the, the waving of the wheat, so to speak? Now that term, a reed shaken by the wind, uh, often spoke of somebody who was a, a waffler, right? Somebody who couldn't quite make up his mind, who went back and forth. One example would be King Herod. Right, King Herod looked at John the Baptist and said, that man is a prophet. But then he arrested him. But then he couldn't execute him because he was a prophet and all the people admired him. But then when his daughter-in-law did a seductive dance and he made a public promise to give her whatever she wanted up to half the kingdom, and she said, I want the head of John the Baptist, well... He waffled again. He goes back and forth. But that wasn't the case of John. John was a man of prophetic conviction. Not only was he preaching powerfully, but when you saw how he lived, he lived with conviction like it was really true. And that showed up in his attire. The next question he asked, but what then did he go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. Now, he's asking a rhetorical question, right? You guys remember what John wrote? He wrote a, he, what, not what he wore. It was a, a tunic made out of camel hair and a leather belt. Now, camel hair was waterproof. He basically wore all weather wear. He can sleep outside Inside, it didn't matter. And I would imagine that camel hair is not that fashionable right now, right? It's, it's itchy, it's tough. But that's what he did. If you wanted to go to the latest fashion show and see people dressed in fine clothes, the wilderness is not a place to find that person. Then he asked them a, a third set of questions. What then did he go out to see? A prophet... Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. Now, in, the, in Israel at that time, a highly religious society where they had not had a prophet for 400 years, to have an actual, real, live, authentic prophet was a big deal. And before you had your phones to doom scroll through, movies to consider, radio to listen to. If you're bored, what would you do? You know, I hear there's a, there's a prophet around here. What do you say, right? There was a natural curiosity that everybody had that there is this real live prophet who's eating locust, eating honey. He lives out in the open and he's dunking people. Come on, let's see. 
George Whitfield was a similar sensation. You guys know about George Whitfield? He is considered the first transatlantic celebrity. He was a revivalist preacher who would preach in England to large revivals, and then he crossed the Atlantic to the American colonies, rode up and down the region, and it is amazing the reach that he had. And one of his biggest fans was Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin was an intentional deist. Grew up in a Puritan home, but rejected it. And yet, he loved listening to George Whitfield. He likened his sermons to an excellent piece of music. Right? He was a seeker. He loved George Whitfield, loved his messages, but not the Messiah. Right? A lot of times a crowd draws a crowd, right? People show up at church because they're curious to see what is this place where all these people sit silently and watch a man monologue for 45 minutes? What is this place where we all sing these songs together and then take an intermission and have like delicious snacks? This is very interesting. You know, maybe this is a place where I can make friends. Maybe this is a place where I can, you know, you know kind of have my Bible verse for the week to kind of keep me going, right? There's all kinds of reasons why people will go to church. They're not necessarily anchored in making a real life change, but maybe an augmentation, right? Something to help them out. And this was the case with Israel where they were very curious about John the Baptist because of what it might um, suggest about their future, that maybe there's some change that is coming. But as we'll see, that when many encounter John, out of curiosity, they still did not find what they're looking for. So Jesus leverages their curiosity by making this claim. Verse 27. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus personalizes a prophecy from Malachi. Malachi 3.1. And Malachi is an interesting book because it was the last book written before what's called the 400 silent years. And as Israel is falling away, they're, under, you know, they're, they're an apostate nation caving into it. Malachi says, you know what? All this is going to turn when I'm going to send someone who's going to point the way to someone else who will change everything. John is a prophet. And not just any prophet. He is distinguished in verse 28, as I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He is considered the greatest prophet because he was the last prophet. And he was the prophet who pointed directly with his own finger to Jesus. You see, he was the last runner in the Olympic torch relay, right? You know how that all works out, right? They, they light the fire in, in Greece and then they go from person to person, torch to torch. And then usually the greatest Olympian in the host country is the one who lights the Olympic cauldron. And then they say, let the games begin. Like in 1996, do you know who it was who lit the torch? 
Muhammad Ali. Good for you. Don't play that man in trivia. I had to look that up. But once the games begin, you no longer focus on the torch relay. You focus on the games. In the case with John the Baptist, he lit the final torch. He pointed to Jesus. And at that point, he said, I must decrease, he must increase. So as great as John is, Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's kind of an interesting statement. See, John gives way to Jesus who establishes his kingdom, and this kingdom is going to be so prosperous and so wonderful that the least member of that kingdom is going to be greater than the greatest man who ever lived in this age. I looked this up this last week. If you were an aristocrat in Europe a thousand years ago, and you ate the finest food of the land, it would be river fish, freshly butchered meat. You'd have fruits and veggies, but they're always cooked because you couldn't eat them raw. You'd have cardamom, pepper, nutmeg, caraway, maybe salt to flavor it. And on special occasions, you might have this thing called sugar. A thousand years ago, that was the best you could eat. If you have $10 today, you could eat better than that. Isn't that true? Like, can you imagine you give, like, King Henry V a Big Mac, and he's like, I've never tasted anything like this. Try it with Doritos. Oh, wow. <laughs> All that to say, I mean, our, I mean, we live way better than the greatest kings a thousand years ago. In the same way, when the kingdom comes, when Jesus establishes the fullness of, of his reign, when people are forgiven, redeemed, renewed, transformed, we will be way better off than even the greatest man who ever lived. Right? He's pointing to something greater. John the Baptist and Jesus are tied together. John points to Jesus. Jesus takes you into the kingdom. And those who embrace that are transformed. So how do people respond to this correlation, to Jesus being the, the one that John points to? Well, Luke makes a parenthetical comment in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so Jesus just established a tight relationship between John and Jesus. Those who accept John accepted Jesus. And the means of accepting John's message was to be baptized. Luke 3.3, 3, turn with me. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. Luke 3.3, 3, we're introduced to his ministry. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was warning them that there is a day of judgment coming. Wrath will be appropriately poured out on those who have sinned against God. 
you need to repent. And your baptism is a symbol of your repentance. And what's interesting is we keep on reading in John chapter 3, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Right? And he answered, he, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Furthermore, you had the tax collectors asking the same question, right? They weren't asking challenging questions, but clarifying questions. They were being baptized by John. Now, baptism was something that was known about in that day and age. There was a rabbinic debate about whether or not a Gentile convert could celebrate the Passover if he converted yesterday. And the answer to that question was yes, if they were baptized, if they were cleansed. Right? Baptism is basically a, a declaration that I need a fresh start. There's something wrong with me and my previous attempt at religion has failed. I need to be cleansed. And that's incidentally why a lot of parents have a hard time when their children get rebaptized. I've seen it. If someone grew up in a tradition where they're baptized as an infant and they get rebaptized, they're basically saying, I disagree with how I was raised. Or the parents saw them get baptized at eight and then that child grows up and lives a wild life, then finally gets her life together, really comes to Christ and says, you know what, I think I became a, a Christian when I was an adult, and they get rebaptized. It's, it's almost like an indictment on their previous judgment. Right? Baptism is, is an indictment. It's basically saying, I needed to be transformed. My first attempt at religion did not work. Now, the people who accepted it, well were the crowds. It was the tax collectors. You didn't have to tell tax collectors that you're a nasty human being. They knew it. But the ones who had a hard time with it, well, those were the Pharisees. Those were the experts in the law. They believed themselves to be faithful. And further, as, as they saw all these crowds being baptized, it's almost like it was an indictment on them, wasn't it? John had to prepare the way for the Messiah because they weren't doing their job. They were offended by this. Some heard the gospel, the good news, and it was good enough. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard the good news, and it was not good enough. They still have not found what they're looking for. So what's the reason behind that? Turn with me to verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and he did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her children. Now, this is called the parable of the brats. 
the parable of the brats. You guys know some brats. Nellie Olson, <laughs> Veruca Salt. And let's face it, you have a mental list. We all have a mental list of just brats. They're self-centered, manipulative, controlling. You can never please them. They cause you to question your love of children. <laughs> and in this parable, Jesus likens this generation to bratty children. So who are the bratty children? Well, it's the experts in the law. It's the Pharisees. It's the people who are rejecting John and Jesus. And he compares them to children playing in a marketplace. Right? They are like children sitting in a marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge and you did not weep. This is the idea. You have a group of children in the marketplace because that's where children get together. And one stands up and says, hey, I've got an idea. Let's play wedding. John, you'll be the pastor. Frank, you'll be the groom. Mary, you're going to be the bride. And Veronica, why don't you play the flute for the reception? And we can all dance and like pretend like we're having a good time. I don't want to play wedding. It's so corny. I don't want to pretend like I'm getting married. I want to do a new game. Okay. Okay. We'll play funeral. John, you're the pastor. Mary, you're the grieving mother. Veronica, you can play the dirge. And Frank, you can be the corpse. I don't want to play funeral. Being a corpse is boring. Nobody wants to play my game. Too close to home? Nobody wants to play my game. That's what Jesus is saying. When you understand the structure of this, this is something we call a, a, a chiasm, where the outside parallels each other and the inside parallels each other. My children are arranged chiastically. Brown hair, green eyes on the outside, blonde hair, blue eyes on the inside. Does that make sense? And so on the outside, you have the people playing the flute, the happy instrument, and that corresponds with Jesus. And then on the inside, you have people playing the dirge, and that corresponds with John the Baptist. And this is what he's saying. I've come at you in multiple ways, right? The Son of Man, verse 34, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Unlike John, Jesus ate and drank like a normal person. He was a walking party. Don't believe me? The wedding at Cana. It was a time of feasting and celebration where things were set right. He's healing, restoring. Joy follows him everywhere. And people look at the composition of the party and say, are those tax collectors I see? Oh, he's a friend of sinners. No way. That's a frat boy, Jesus. We're not following him. <laughs> and then you have John the Baptist. Okay, you don't want the frat boy, Jesus. You don't want to celebrate. We'll do mourning, okay? Look at John. He's not eating. Well, not like you eat. He's eating grasshoppers, locust, and wild honey. He's not drinking. Well, Part of that because he was under a vow, right? It was prophesied in 
Luke chapter 115, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So he's not eating, he's not drinking, he's preaching a message of repentance and contrition, and he's living like it. I don't know. Seems kind of grim if you ask me. He needs a little bit of happiness. Some people said, he's crazy. And other people would conclude, crazy people are possessed by demons. He has a demon. All right? You, you see the situation. You can't win. You can't win. The sermon is not relevant for my needs. Well, the sermon is too shallow, not doctrinal enough, right? You can always find some excuse. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is calling their bluff. I come at you this way, you say no. You come at you this way, you say no. Maybe the problem is not the message. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe the reason why you still have not found what you're looking for is not because the gospel is not what you're looking for. Maybe the problem is you can't recognize it when you see it. And then he says, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. He's telling the Pharisees and the experts of the law that these crowds over here, these tax collectors, they're wise because they hear it and they embrace it and they accept it. They see the gospel and the gospel's good enough. But for those of you who still have not found what you're looking for, if the gospel is not good enough for you, then nothing will be. The problem's you. Do you see the danger? So why is it that so many people are content with a spiritual search? They're exposed to the gospel, and then they pass it by. What drives that? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons why. These are not the only reasons, but there are three reasons I think are, are clear from other biblical passages. The first one is the answer ends the pursuit of the new and novel. Okay, the answer ends the pursuit of the new and novel. I saw uh, a photograph of a sign in a cafe that read, we do not have Wi-Fi, talk to each other, Pretend it's 1995. <laughs> that was a good year. That was a good year. It was after the Cold War and before the War on Terror. It's when the coffee shop culture was beginning to take flight. And, you know, we always would go to places like the Java Dive. It's before Starbucks. And get a latte and, like, talk about really deep things as we're listening to the Cranberries <laughs> and the Goo Goo Dolls. Or jars of clay. It was awesome. But there is something about just trying to be deep and having meaning and talking about these ideas. But what I found is that many people, when the best idea came up, they would just go right past it. Now, in Acts chapter 17, Luke describes the Athenians. He says this in 1721. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They'd spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
They loved hearing fresh ideas, the latest fad. Tell me, what do you think about this? It was like a, a cocktail party in togas. And when something new came their way, hmm. And then when something new came their way and just said, you have to believe this or you'll be judged, they got pretty upset about that. You see, there is a, a saying, fear of missing out, FOMO, that if I commit to Christianity, then that rules out all these other possibilities. Man, if I marry this girl, think about all the girls I won't be able to date anymore. I can't be locked down with any commitment. And yet, here's the problem with that. There is this belief that meaning is called, you know, is derived from self-fulfillment. I am on my own journey, my own path, and I need to figure out what will fulfill me, as opposed to the gospel, which calls you to self-denial. You know, a, a man who is unwilling to marry and will just date, 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 never figures out what a relationship can be until he really makes the commitment. You can say you're trying Christianity, but you've never really tried it until you're all the way committed to it. Only then can you understand the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which means that you commit to being a follower of Jesus. Uh, the second reason is the answer leads to a loss of social status. The answer leads to a loss of social status. There's many people out there in that audience who are listening to John and Jesus preach that if they were to commit and be baptized and make a public statement, it would have tremendous social ramifications. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogues. Did you hear that? There are many of the authorities, they believed in Jesus, but if they were to confess it, they would be put out of the synagogue. And the whole life of the village, of the community, was around the synagogue. And they rose to the highest echelon as they were authorities in that synagogue. Imagine what it would be like for a Catholic priest in 1950s Boston. If you're a Catholic priest in 1950s Boston, you were a community leader. You were invited to be a part of the country club. You got invited to dine with the elites and sit in the, the parlors of the famous and the wealthy of that region. Everyone would acknowledge your presence as you walked down the street. Poor, rich, it didn't matter. You were a community leader. And let's say that you, as a Catholic priest, are reading your Bible and you start to think, you know what? Maybe God doesn't actually change the Eucharist into the actual bread and body of Christ. Maybe purgatory is not real. Maybe we shouldn't be praying to Mary. Maybe we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Do you see the cost? It's not like you can go from being a Catholic priest to being a Baptist pastor. Right? You can't just make that switch. It's basically to lose all your social status that is built around your faithfulness to that religion. And frankly, I have known many people in pastoral ministry and they love the spiritual authority and to give that up 
even if, let's say, they're disqualified morally, is very difficult for them to do. The cost was too great socially. So they try to do both, quietly believe. The third reason why people are content seeking without finding is the answer can change the way you live. The answer can change your way you live. And there's no greater example than this, the rich young ruler. Remember him? He's rich and he's a ruler. He has money, he has power. He comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through the different commandments with him and he says, I've kept them all. What am I missing? And then Jesus makes a commentary on the 10th commandment, do not covet, and says this in 1921, Matthew 19:21. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You need to renounce your greed. That's what's keeping you back. And in verse 22, and the young man heard this, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I would do anything but that, Jesus. What must you do? Well, you need to break off that immoral relationship. Well, can I do something besides that? You're going to have to be part of the community of faith and give up some of your autonomy, actually join the church. Can I do something besides that? Jesus, you're not saved by that, but it's a sign of your commitment. Are you willing to do anything and have your life truly changed and transformed to follow him? But they'll be content to come close, but not close out. As I mentioned, Ben Franklin had great admiration for George Whitfield. They actually developed a lifelong friendship. It was Ben Franklin who published all of George Whitfield's sermons for public consumption. So he did benefit from that. And even though he was a deist, Franklin loved and respected Whitfield, believed him to be the real deal. He even wrote a, uh, a fleeting comment in one of his letters to Whitfield that they should start a colony together that's built on Christian principles. And all the while, Whitfield was always evangelizing him, pleading with him. He wrote in his final letter that we have to Ben Franklin that he hoped that Franklin would be in that happy number of those who in the midst of the tremendous final blaze shall cry amen. And so did Ben Franklin convert. That's been a subject of debate. But I want to read an excerpt from a letter he wrote one month before he died to the president of Yale University who was an ardent Christian and concerned for Ben Franklin's soul. Franklin says this, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is like to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes and I have some doubts as to his divinity. That was a month before he passed away. He admired Jesus. He thought Jesus was great, best moral teacher ever. But was he Lord? No, no. 
He was a man who loved being in the scene. He was a man who loved having friends all across the spectrum. He was able to be a chameleon, conform to the highest societies of America and Europe, and yet he was a terrible husband and terrible father. He prided himself as being a self-made man, but when it came to actually giving glory to Jesus Christ, he hedged. Jesus still, in Jesus, he still did not find what he was looking for. You know, the whole concept of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, is actually kind of backwards, isn't it? Probably the better question, or the better statement, is, has God found what he's looking for in you? So what exactly is God looking for in you? Well, Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is looking for someone who is humble, believing God is the center of all good and glory. Somebody who is contrite, who owns and acknowledges his sin. And then somebody who trembles at his word. When you tremble at his word, you approach his word with a certain amount of fear. If this is what the Lord says I must do, if I need to end this relationship, if I need to wean myself off of wealth corruption, if I need to come face to face with this, with this secret sin I haven't gotten serious about, if I tremble at his word, what will you do? It's not enough to go through the motions. It's not enough to express some appreciation for Jesus. If you haven't fully and wholeheartedly submitted your whole life to Jesus Christ, then God still hasn't found what he's looking for in you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for this warning. And I pray for those who are on the fringe. Perhaps they've been toying with making a firm commitment. But they have been hedging, and they know it. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will help them to make that final commitment, that they will see the gospel as good enough and commit themselves to it. And for those who might be new, perhaps it's the first time they heard of it, I pray that this will start them on a journey, that they will look to you and look for the gospel and that they will find you. And when they do, they will gladly accept and embrace it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.